0: The purpose of this video documentary isn't so much to focus on the characters, the personalities of Messrs, Luther, Calvin, Zwingli, Knox, or even John Wesley, but to focus more specifically on their theology, their beliefs. Luther's pernicious views of the Jews has been heavily documented over the years. Calvin's police state in Geneva has also been heavily documented over the years and other reformers and their colourful characters have also been heavily reported over the years so the purpose of this documentary will be to focus more specifically on some unknown teachings, beliefs, customs that Luther especially would retain late into his life and I hope this video will be of interest to all students of scripture And students of church history especially. During the preparation of this video documentary. Three subjects would concern me the most. Concerning the Protestant reformers. Number one. How they would all baptise babies. Number two. How they would all condone of the clergy and laity system. Which is condemned in the book of Revelation. Being the Nicolaitan problem. And number three how they would all condone of capital punishment, not so much concerning civil affairs, but ecclesiastical affairs. One would have expected a level of integrity, a level of orthodoxy from people such as Wesley, Luther, Knox, Wycliffe, Calvin and others. And yet tragically, someone such as Zwingli, the Swiss reformer, would say of Mary that she was, quote-unquote, immaculate, seeming to suggest he believed in the immaculate conception, which, of course, is a blasphemous belief. Only Christ was conceived without original sin, not Mary. And he would also say how she was without, quote-unquote, the smallest trace of a stain. Remarkable. And other terms, such as Mary, quote-unquote, being the mother of God, was also retained by many of the Protestant reformers. And yet if Mary was the mother of God, does that mean her mother was God's grandmother, or her father was God's grandfather? Such a silly statement, such a superstitious, ridiculous sentiment, was sadly retained by many of the reformers in the 15th, 16th, and even into the 17th century. And the one thing that all of these reformers had in common would be how they all died young. Luther, 62. Knox, 58. Wycliffe, 56. Calvin, 54. Wesley would be 87 when he passed away. So yes, you can take someone out of Roman Catholicism, but sometimes you cannot always take Roman Catholicism out of a person And this video documentary will display that in much more detail as we continue on. On the 31st of October, 1517, a German priest named Martin Luther, aged 34, would approach the castle church in Wittenberg, Germany, where he would nail his 95 Theses to its door. Martin Luther was born in 1483, would die in 1546, would see with his own eyes, public debauchery concerning priests and prelates in Germany and also in Rome, would witness the ostentatious renovation of St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. Months became years of internal agony, and one day Martin Luther would put pen to paper and would nail his famous thesis to the church door in Wittenberg, Germany. His main complaints would surround repentance being internal, not external, the abuse of purgatory, the abuse of indulgences. His main disagreement with Rome would not concern the papacy, would not concern the mass, would not concern Mary, but it would concern the abuse of poor people having to pay their way out of purgatory, which of course is fictitious, offering money to priests to get time off purgatory through indulgences. Luther was born into a modest family and to help make ends meet, would have to sing on the street to pay his way through school, was better known for his preaching than his theology, would publicly rebuke kings like Henry VIII and popes like Paul III, would be fearless until his death. A typical Lord's Day would consist of three services and a weekly communion. Wine, wine, would be administered, not fruit juice, or fruit of the vine. Luther was a brilliant musician, would speak and preach in two languages, would turn Germany into a modern nation, would do a wonderful work when it came to the Reformation, and would say the following, quote: I am conquered by the Holy Scriptures quoted by me, and my conscience is bound in the Word of God. I cannot, and will not recant anything, since it is unsafe and dangerous to do anything against the conscience. To the non-Catholic, the doctrine of purgatory, the belief in indulgences, will appear somewhat bizarre, even offensive. But for the Roman Catholic, such a person has no assurance of salvation, and therefore they have to pray their way out of purgatory. This goes back to the days of Cyprian, Eusebius, the Unscriptural belief that a sinful person can pay a priest to somehow intercede for them upon death. And this is what was offensive to Martin Luther and other reformers. But a great scripture to read to dismiss such a diabolical doctrine would be Hebrews seven twenty-five. Wherefore he in Jesus of course is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them so purgatory is not necessary Christ has paid for all of your past present and future sins but tragically going back to the third century the belief that purgatory was a real place was held over the heads of many Catholics and was a powerful tool in the armory. ...of the Catholic Church. But by the grace of God, the Reformation broke such a cruel belief. Many Catholics were set free from such an unbiblical doctrine. But sadly, to this day, many Catholics still believe in indulgences and also in purgatory. I've been told by Christian nurses over the years that... ...when Catholic patients go into their wards and are sick, in fact even dying... The majority are terrified, not of hell, because hell is rarely spoken of, but they are terrified of purgatory. And many Christian nurses over the years have had to sit back in silence and watch these tortured Catholics terrified of going to purgatory, where they are purged for their sins. But Hebrews 1 speaks about Christ being purged on our behalf, taking the full penalty of the sin of the world upon him. But the Catholic Church, tragically, doesn't believe the Bible. They read it occasionally, but they don't believe it as such. And as and when they quote Scripture, nearly every single time they take verses out of context. But again, wherefore he, Jesus, is able to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, no man cometh unto the Father but by me, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. Not the church, Not the priest, not Mary, but the Lord Jesus Christ. And I hope this wicked doctrine of indulgence and purgatory will be consigned to the waste paper bin. And may God get the glory. Let's continue. Not all reformers were unable to separate themselves from the adoration of Mary. John Knox, another former Catholic priest from Scotland... Would be arrested and served as a galley slave in France. Chained to benches. Whipped for 19 months. Was more political than preacher. More a revolutionary than a revivalist. Was born in 1513. Would die in 1572. Was a companion of Calvin. And was able to avoid death twice. Under two Catholic queens. John Calvin was born in 1509 would die in 1561, was more on par with Thomas Aquinas, and was characterised as the Aristotle of the Reformation. Like Luther, he would rely heavily on Augustine. Was called the Pope of Protestantism. Was hated and hounded by locals in and around Geneva. While Luther never killed anyone, directly or indirectly, John Calvin would. Was also called an ecclesiastical dictator. Around 1540, A typical church service would consist of confessing sins and receiving absolution. Again, very Catholic. Calvin was a cruel and cold man. Multiple deaths and public whippings took place under his watch. One girl who struck her parents was beheaded for her bad behaviour. While Luther was more evangelical, had more of a heart for the people, Calvin was more calculated. Calvin was more of a philosopher whereas Luther was more of a preacher. But when it comes to the subject of Mary, which is the main focus of this video, John Calvin is more nonchalant when it comes to whether or not she was a perpetual virgin. At times, his writings appear somewhat irritated, even dismissive, but uh, never once would he come out and say she wasn't, and therefore he's left his audience basically having to guess what his... Position was whereas Martin Luther for many years would teach she was a perpetual virgin and uh, some of the quotes are quite alarming. It's most unfortunate how many of the Protestant reformers were never able to completely shake themselves free of the shackles of Roman Catholicism, the retention of man-made doctrines. It goes back to Jesus having to rebuke the Jews for Their traditions which nullified the word of God, terms such as the mother of God or the queen of heaven, were still being used by the reformers many years after the reformation. There are copious quotes from Martin Luther concerning his almost adoration of the Virgin Mary. So I thought what I would do is pick out just three. And the first reads as follows, quote, The most blessed mother of God, the most blessed Virgin Mary, the mother of Christ, and yes, even the Queen of Heaven. Close quote. The second reads as follows, quote, God has formed the soul and body of the Virgin Mary, full of the Holy Spirit, so that she is without all sins, for she hath conceived and born the Lord Jesus. Close quote. And the third and final, Christ our Saviour was a real and natural fruit of Mary's vaginal womb. This was without the cooperation of a man, and she remained a virgin after that, Christ was the only son of Mary, and the Virgin Mary bore no children besides him, quote. So such quotes would come from the pen of Martin Luther, after the Reformation. So who was Luther? Well he was born to peasant parents, at the age of 14 he would be sent to a Franciscan school, later on his father would be promoted to master minor, and was able to assist his son's studies where he would study law. Down the line, he receives a degree of the Master of Arts where he undertakes a course studying the lectures of Aristotle. By 1505, against opposition from his father and friends, he would enter an Augustinian convent. By 1507, again against his father's wishes, he would be ordained a Catholic priest. By 1508, now aged, 25. He's offered the chair of dialectics and would lecture in theology at the university in Wittenberg, Germany, by 1512. He's now a doctor of theology where he's studying Greek and Hebrew. He's catholic through and through, born a catholic, lives a catholic. His initial objections going back to All Saints Eve, October the 31st, 1517. Was to reform the church. And out of his 95 thesis. Number 71. He speaks against those that would attack. The doctrine of purgatory. And on top of that. He would pronounce an anathema. On anyone who spoke against such truth. And proposition 71. Number 71. He's attacking the abuse. Not the doctrine of indulgences. Proclaiming pronouncing an anathema on anyone who spoke against the truth of papal indulgences. Incredible. And he goes on to say that he had no purpose to speak against Holy writs or the doctrines of the Popes and Fathers of the Church. So his whole purpose was to reform the Catholic Church. He wasn't against the dogmas, the doctrine, the customs of purgatory or indulgences, but how they are being abused. Naturally, the Pope of the day is infuriated by this German monk and Luther is called to answer for himself. And he says the following, quote, Most Holy Father, I cast myself at thy feet with all that I have and am. Give life or take it. Call, recall, approve, reprove. Your voice is that of Christ who presides and speaks in you. Close quote. Luther's departure from the Catholic Church was... A long road, a long route out. Born into the Catholic Church, and here we are, Luther, in his mid-30s, not yet ready to leave the Church. He was a part of, a part of his life, a part of his heart, and he's still holding on for the hope that the Pope may receive him back into the fold. Councils held against Luther would push him to reveal his beliefs, And around 1519, Luther correctly upholds that faith alone is what saves sinners. By 1521, he affirms that the Bible is the only source of faith, that human nature was wholly corrupt by original sin, that consequently man was not free, and whatever he did, whether good or ill, was the work of God. That, of course, is classical Calvinism. And that Christian priesthood, is universal. He would urge the emperor to overthrow the power of the pope, confiscate the wealth of the church, abolish feasts and holidays and masses for the dead. By 1520, the pope would issue a bull specifically condemning Luther's teachings and excommunicating him if he refused to retract within sixty days. Luther naturally retorted with a pamphlet in which he held the author. Of the bull to be Antichrist. A view going back to the 12th century, of course, concerning the papacy. Later that year, around December the 10th, 1520, Luther would publicly burn the Pope's bull against him, consigning the Pope himself to "quote unquote, fire eternal. By 1521 to 1522, Luther has now moved, and he calls himself Master George, and dresses. As a knight. By 1521, around December time, Adrian VI tries to reach out to Luther and interestingly would urge the Diet of Nuremberg to reach out and deal with Luther at the time. A thorn in the side of the Catholic Church, of course. By 1946, you have a court taking place in Nuremberg dealing with Nazi war criminals. Interesting. In the years following, Luther's teachings were taking effect among the people. Many monks would renounce their orders and their vows. One of Luther's friends would even raise a mob at Wittenberg and go on to destroy altars and images of Christ and the saints. During Easter of 1522, more monks left their convents, took wives and recruited the Lutheran ranks. The peasants would rise up and in rebellion against their lords would burn convents, storm castles thomas munster one of luther's companions took the lead preaching human equality luther himself was compelled to preach against those whom his doctrines had aroused and he urged the nobles to slay without mercy these quote-unquote children of the devil you see sometimes words have consequences his advice was taken and it is estimated that a hundred thousand Peasants were slain in the Peasants' War. Innuendos, hearsay, speculation has always surrounded Martin Luther. One source would suggest he was pro-polygamy. Not himself, but concerning one of his companions. The term Protestants first appears April 19th, 1529. And those that followed Luther claimed to be the exclusive heirs of the true religion the only members of the one saving church of Jesus Christ, and pronounce the mass an idolatrous act of worship, which should not be tolerated. Much of this is absolutely correct, incidentally. And if you care to know I'm reading from a Catholic book, a Catholic dictionary from 1960. By 1530 to 1531, both Luther and his companions authorised the use of arms for the maintenance of Protestantism Around that same time, incidentally, the Catholics are moving. The uh, Inquisition would, of course, later take ground. Of course, the Crusades would predate this. But uh, you've got man against man. You've got the Catholics and the Protestants armed to the teeth. Where, of course, Christ never once would allow such a thing to take place. By 1534, Luther has completed... His translation of the whole Bible, which incidentally is the correct text, the received text, textus receptus, of course. And another quote from Luther, may God fill you with hatred of the Pope, Close quote. And the rest of this five page document goes on to ridicule Luther and the Lutheran movement, which of course you would expect. But history is history. Whether we like it or not, most of this I believe is probably correct, and that's why I've read it, recorded it, and included it for this documentary. When it comes to the subject of consubstantiation, not only would Luther hold to such a view, but so too would John Wycliffe, the Yorkshireman who would go on to translate the Bible for the first time into English. When it comes to defining consubstantiation, which is not the same as transubstantiation, i want to read what the catholic church say such a doctrine consists of quotes an heretical doctrine which maintains that the substance of bread and wine coexists with the substance of the body and blood of our lord after the consecration this was condemned by the fourth lateran council the council of constance and the council of trent basically what they're saying is when you take the bread when you take the wine you are literally eating the body of Christ and you are literally drinking the blood of Christ which of course is a heresy in and of itself but so too I believe is consubstantiation which attempts to meet the church of Rome halfway of course the breaking of bread is found in scripture but it's to be done in commemoration of Christ's death on a cross he's not physically present it's to be done in his name to remember what he did for all of us of course John Calvin's view on the Eucharist on the breaking of bread. Is more mystical. Contrast that to Luther's and Wycliffe's view. That Christ is partially present. And going back to the Catholic Church's dictionary. Which is long out of print. They say the following about John Calvin. "Quote. He speaks of the sacraments. In reference to baptism and the Eucharist. As mystical signs. Instituted by God. Who through them not only reminds men of past benefits, but also renews these benefits, seals his promises, strengthens, and increases the faith of the recipients by the operation of the Holy Ghost. Thus to Calvin, the sacraments were not bare signs, but real channels of grace, but it was to elect only that they conveyed this grace. To others, they were bare and inoperative symbols. John Wesley was born in 1703, would die in 1791. In 1725, he was ordained curate into the Church of England, following in the footsteps of his father. In 1749, he would write a letter to a Roman Catholic concerning Mary's perpetual virginity, where he would say, quote, I believe that he was made man, joining the human nature with the divine in one person, being conceived by the singular operation of the Holy Ghost, and born of the Blessed Virgin Mary, who, as well after as before she brought him forth, continued a pure and unspotted virgin. Close Wesley was also a linguist, speaking Greek, Latin and Hebrew, and would go on to translate Thomas Akempis' Imitation of Christ. As we've already noted, Calvin, Luther and Zwingli would all condone directly and indirectly violence, against their enemies for luther it would concern civil affairs whereas for calvin and zwingli it would concern ecclesiastical affairs zwingli was the most intolerant the most ferocious the most dangerous when it came to christians non-denominational christians living in and around switzerland and lawrence vance in his excellent book the other side of calvinism says the following about this period quote they were persecuted by both Catholics and Protestants. The aforementioned second Diet of Speyer in 1529 decreed that all Baptists, male or female of mature age, shall be put to death, by fire or sword, or otherwise according to the person, without preceding trial. And he goes on to say the following about Luther. Quote, the problem Luther had with Baptists was not that they immersed, Luther himself at one time acknowledged immersion, as scriptural and even immersed his own son, but that they rebaptized. Sir so Luther, Zwingli, Calvin still attained that Catholic intolerance, and anyone who dared to question their authority would be dealt with severely. One of the main criticisms from the Catholic Church, even until this day, would concern Protestants in Britain and Europe stealing their lands. Quote confiscating their lands taking over monasteries and convents and churches but of course what the catholic has to appreciate was how such lands originally had been stolen by the catholic church and so once the protestant reformation took ground in britain and europe such protestant leaders were reclaiming once stolen lands and taking such lands into ownership of the state the gifts that god would give some of the protestant reformers was truly remarkable someone like zwingli gifted in music as was luther gifted in languages as was luther and yet like calvin would execute anyone who was rebaptized. would mandate any baby that hadn't yet been baptized to be baptized it's tragic men like zwingli and calvin so cruel And still retaining Catholic customs. And yet paradoxically. Zurich was a blessed state. Because Zurich had Zwingli. And Zwingli was one of the first Protestant reformers. To preach the entire Bible. Like the New Testament. Verse by verse to his parishioners. And yet he was still weighed down. By these superstitions of the Catholic Church. So tragic and so unnecessary. Out of all of the reformers. Calvin has the least to say about his position concerning mary's so-called perpetual virginity and yet two years before his death would put pen to paper in response to the historian Helvidius, who quite rightly argued that she was not a perpetual virgin quote the inference he helvidius drew from it was that mary remained a virgin no longer than till her first birth and that afterwards she had other children by her husband no just and well-grounded inference can be drawn from these words as to what took place after the birth of Christ. He is called firstborn, but it is for the sole purpose of informing us that he was born of a virgin. What took place afterwards, the historian does not inform us. Close quote. So the suggestion there, the inference there would be that Calvin is not in agreement with Helvidius. In fact, he is slapping him down. Elsewhere, he would say that Helvidius displayed Excessive ignorance in concluding that Mary must have had many sons because Christ's brothers are sometimes mentioned. Close quote. That, of course, goes back to idioms which we will discuss later, but Calvin's statement seems to put him in the camp of Luther, Wesley, and also Zwingli. And the following statement from Zwingli is as clear as could possibly be, and this was written less than a decade before his death. Quote, I have never thought, still less taught, or declared publicly anything concerning the subject of the ever-Virgin Mary, Mother of our salvation, which could be considered dishonourable impious, unworthy or evil. I believe, with all my heart, according to the word of the Holy Gospel, that this pure virgin bore for us the Son of God, and that she remained in the birth, and after it a pure and unsullied virgin for eternity." No ambiguity there. Zwingli was convinced that she was a perpetual virgin. And elsewhere was said the following, quote, Mary, ever virgin, mother of God, close quote. So what exactly does the Catholic Church teach and believe when it comes to Mary? Well, I thought what I would do is return once again to this very helpful dictionary, written in 1957, revised 17 times. It has the imprimatur, of the Vicar General, a chap called Bernard, and my edition is dated 1960. This is official Catholic teaching, and I say that because I don't want to be accused of misrepresenting what the Catholic Church teaches. Another reason for quoting this long-out-of-print dictionary is because much of this material would have been taught to Luther, Knox, and Zwingli when they were training to become Roman Catholic priests. So let's start on the subject of the so-called bodily assumption of Mary. Quote, After the death of her divine son, the Blessed Virgin lived under the care of St. John. Yes, that's true. At least temporarily. We're not told for how long, but we know why. She was given into the care of John, because number one, John was the closest to Jesus. Number two, John would live the longest. And number three, John was self-employed, self-sufficient, Joseph is dead around this time. Mary, being the Lord's mother, and his siblings, too young to fend for themselves, let alone Mary. And Jesus, being the firstborn son, had a duty to provide for his mother and also his siblings. So it makes total sense to me, for John, to be asked to look after Mary, which he would do. But of course, by Acts chapter 1, Mary and the brethren are in the upper room. John 14, you've got Jude, a believer, In the Lord Jesus Christ. And probably the author of the epistle of Jude. James. Not yet saved. 1 Corinthians 15. Acts chapter 15. Would get saved later. And John chapter 7. It says how his brethren did not yet believe on him. So based on family strains. Stigma. And separation. There was an issue between Mary and Jesus. Mary and the Lord's half brothers and sisters. Post the resurrection, it would appear that the entire family believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. But for a period of time, there was a splinter. There was an issue concerning taking care of Mary and also uniting his unbelieving brethren. Also, the hostility towards Mary leading up to the death, burial and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ would have been difficult, would have been problematic. And like I say, his siblings didn't yet believe on him. So, John, being the closest to Jesus, was the best person to take care of Mary and the children temporarily. Let's read on. It is not quite certain where she died. It's not even necessary to even speculate. It's not relevant as to where she died. We're not even told when Eve died back in the Old Testament. Tillamont conjectures from a passage in a letter of the fathers assembled in the General Council of Ephesus that she was buried in that city. But the common tradition of the church represents her as having died at Jerusalem, where her empty tomb was shown to pilgrims in the 7th century. That's probably true. She probably lived in Jerusalem, died in Jerusalem. We know Acts chapter 5, Peter and John are preaching in and around Jerusalem. It's possible later that John went to Ephesus. He was, of course, later detained in the Isle of Patmos. But for a period of time, the apostles were all living in and around Jerusalem. And also goes on to say how her empty tomb was shown to pilgrims in the 7th century. Well, number one, how do you know she was buried there? Number two, would it even matter if she was buried there? But also, if you think about some of these statements from Islamic apologists over the years, they have said one of the reasons why Islam would grow so quickly and was so successful wasn't just due to the sword, but it was also due to idolatry, superstition. You had statues you had idols you had relics not only around europe but also in arabia and followers of muhammad around the 7th century were sick to the stomach to see such relics and that gave ammunition to the followers of muhammad to follow him and abandon christianity but again it speaks about an empty tomb was shown to pilgrims commercialism and again we don't know if she was buried there but I would suggest she probably lived and died in Jerusalem. And uh, just because there was an empty tomb doesn't prove anything. It is generally held that she really died. Well, of course, she had to die the wages of sin is death. And that her exemption from sin, original and actual, did not prevent her paying this common debt of humanity. Going back to what Paul says, how we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And she wasn't exempt either from original sin. She would say that God was her saviour and she would also worship in the temple and offer sacrifice in the temple. Because of course she was a sinner. And it goes on to say the following quote. It is a striking fact that notwithstanding the zeal of the early church in collecting and venerating relics. No relics of the blessed virgin body has ever been exhibited. Well some groups may have been looking for bones, remains of dead people but not all. The early church were predominantly Jewish and they were told time after time back in the Old Testament to stop worshipping statues and stones, to stop worshipping false gods. Not all Christians in the first two or three centuries were collecting relics and just because no relics or remains of Mary have been found doesn't prove anything. I would suggest that she was probably given a modest burial because of course she was a modest woman and the Lord didn't want people finding her remains So she was buried out of sight, a bit like Moses was buried out of sight, to stop the Jews finding his body and turning it into an idol. And finally, concerning the subject of the so-called bodily Assumption of Mary, the article concludes, The corporate Assumption is now an article of faith, in other words, not up for debates. The common belief of the faithful, itself a reflection of the teaching of the Church, has finally received the highest possible sanction. The corporate Assumption of the Blessed Virgin, was solemnly defined by Pope Pius XII on November the 1, 1st, 1950, as a truth revealed by God, founded upon Scripture and tradition, which is not true whatsoever. Nowhere in Scripture are you told that Mary was bodily assumed into heaven. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. Mary was a recipient of grace, not a dispenser. And just because Pius XII... Decided to affirm that she was bodily assumed into heaven upon death in 1950 it doesn't mean anything. It's the words of Maine. This also goes back to superstition over scripture. Tradition over truth. Let's continue on. They say the following. The object of this article is to sum up and justify the teaching and practice of the Catholic Church in her devotion to the Blessed Virgin. They want to explain themselves. They want to defend themselves. This dictionary was written for priests, and again, that's why I'm quoting it, because Luther would have read similar material as would have Knox and Zwingli. And I have no idea how much time those three spent with the Lord after coming out of Catholicism. The Apostle Paul would spend over three years in Arabia, spending time alone with the Lord. But it would appear at times that Luther, Knox, and Zwingli were still towing the Catholic line, unfortunately. It continues, Catholics do not stand alone in this devotion, for the schismatic Greeks and most of the ancient oriental sects agree with Catholics in magnifying Mary's dignity and seeking her intercession. It makes no difference. Just because the majority hold to a view proves nothing. The majority of the world, for example, would reject the call to repentance from Noah. And the majority Of the world would reject Jesus' call to repentance. So, the majority holding a view, believing in a system, proves nothing. And just because a system of faith has been in place for a long period of time doesn't prove anything. Let's continue. The object of this article is to sum up and justify the teaching and practice of the Catholic Church in her devotion to the Blessed Virgin. They want to defend themselves. They want to explain themselves because, of course, they know they will be called to account. It continues. Protestants, on the other hand, are all but unanimous in condemning the church's devotion and have often denounced it as idolatrous because it is. She was a good woman, lived a good life, was humble, suffered indirectly alongside her son's ministry, would be aware of people sniggering, gossiping, slandering her son, Going back to strains and stigma. And that's why John was asked to take care of Mary. And again, Protestants, on the other hand, are all but unanimous in condemning the church's devotion. Well, of course, Paul speaks about those that are spiritual would be called upon to push back against heresy and have denounced it as idolatrous. Well, of course, only God is worthy of worship. Only once does Mary speak specifically in Scripture, John chapter 2, and she would say, whatever he says to you, do it. Let's continue reading. But Protestants who believe, as the apocalypse implies, that the serpent was the devil, and that our Lord is the promised seed of the woman, who was to crush the serpent's head, are logically bound to understand the woman who is to be at enmity with the serpents as Mary. No, it's Israel. It starts with Eve. Then it goes into Israel as a nation and yes Mary is a type of Israel but the specific reference from Genesis chapter 3 is aimed at Israel as a nation not Mary as a daughter of Israel. Continues on. This prediction was fulfilled and Mary received the highest dignity possible to a mere creature. She was not indeed the mother of the Godhead but she was the mother of God for the simple reason that Christ her son was God and man in one person. The term Godhead means the nature of God, the character of God. She's not the mother of God. She's the mother of Christ. She is exalted above the angels, for surely God's mother is nearer to him than the angels who stand before the throne. Why would you think such a thing? Once Noah boarded the boat, once Noah descended the boats, the boats was no longer necessary for anyone's salvation. Once Mary gave birth to Christ, she was no longer necessary for anyone's salvation. Indirectly, she would partake, obviously, of the Incarnation. But once Christ was born, her purpose had ceased. Going back to Noah exiting the boat. Once she did so, along with his family, the boat was no longer necessary. Let's continue. But Mary was not merely the passive instruments of the Incarnation, She was a young Jewish girl from a typical Jewish family, probably overwhelmed to receive this angelic visitation, was humble enough to receive it, not to reject it. By the free use of her own will, she cooperated in our salvation and was associated with her divine son. Indirectly, absolutely, but not directly. She would acknowledge she was a sinner. She would rejoice in God her saviour. At times, she doesn't fully appreciate... What is happening when Jesus was 12? He gets lost in the temple, and she goes back to find him. When she finds him, she says, uh, Your father and I have been looking for you, and he says, I must be about my father's business. And it says how she pondered all these things in her heart. It almost appears at times like she was partly forgetful as to the Lord's ministry. It depended on her whether or not the divine economy by which the Incarnation and our Redemption were accomplished, was to be frustrated, as the first dispensation had been by the disobedience of Adam and Eve. Calvinists will also say that God would use irresistible grace to fall upon Mary, so she could not resist him, which I don't accept, but that's what they would argue. She was given a choice, she was given the option to say no, she said yes, and that's why God chose her, based on foreknowledge. He knew she wouldn't resist him, he knew that she would... Receive his message and embrace it. Let's continue. There is no hint in scripture of any sin or imperfection on Mary's parts. Ridiculous. Just because she was never intoxicated. Just because she didn't gossip or commit adultery or fornication. Doesn't mean she wasn't a sinner. We've all sinned. We all have a sin nature. All of us do. That's why she offered a sacrifice in the temple upon the birth of her firstborn son. Such a statement is very superficial. No doubt our Lord, when she told him at the wedding that there was no wine, answered, woman, what is there to me and to thee? The King James says, woman, what have I to do with thee? Continue. Mine hour is not yet come. Brackets. The translation is that of Dr. Westcott. Yes, the infamous Westcott and Hort. This dictionary incidentally quotes Westcott many times and also Cardinal Newman, who would convert from the Church of England into the Church of Rome, continue on. Possibly Christ may have meant that there was nothing in common between his divine and her human nature. She could not fathom the counsels of his omniscience. The hour of full triumph, which she naturally and innocently desired, had not yet come. Well, of course she couldn't fathom it. She saw a situation. She decided to approach the Lord Jesus. He stepped in, not because of her, but due to the guests at the wedding. Quite likely family or friends, and again what she says, whatever he says unto you, do it, should be marked and underlined by all Roman Catholics. Mary was no doubt linked to Christ. Mary was no doubt the mother of the Lord Jesus Christ. She was not the mother of God. She was the mother of the Lord Jesus Christ, his human mother. She loved him. She followed him. She believed on him, she was saved, she was present at the cross. And after the resurrection, the word of God does not say that he appeared to Mary, but he would appear, first and foremost, to Peter. Acts chapter 1, she's in the upper room, and she's found in 13th place. Let's continue. Nor does the New Testament ever imply that Mary ceased to be a virgin. On the contrary, Mark 6, his brothers and sisters are named, they're mentioned. This goes back to Jewish idioms. This goes back to Abraham and Lot. And the argument is along the lines of Abraham called Lot his brother. And yet earlier on in Genesis you are told clearly that Abraham was Lot's uncle. Later on he calls Lot his brother. But Lot wasn't Abraham's biological brother. Abraham was not Lot's biological brother. Abraham was Lot's uncle. Without going back over antiquity and uh, picking out pagan goddesses, pagan female deities and showing the comparisons between them and Mary. What I want to try and do is stick as close to what the Catholic Church teaches itself about Mary. Let's continue. And again, nor does the New Testament ever imply that Mary ceased to be a virgin. On the contrary, it confirms, though it nowhere states Matthew chapter 1, the word of God says how she was a virgin until she brought forth her firstborn son. Had she remained a virgin all of her life, according to 1 Corinthians 7, she would have been in violation of her marriage vows. To deprive Joseph of marital relations would have been sinful. And the term firstborn means just that, firstborn. But the Catholics will go back to the Old Testament where they'll say, but Ephraim was called the Lord's firstborn, or in Colossians, Jesus is called the firstborn. As far as Ephraim is concerned, as far as Jesus is concerned, in fact, even David is called the Lord's firstborn in uh, Psalm 89, but in such cases, the term firstborn means in reference to one's preeminence, not in reference to one's chronological birth. Continue on. Saint Joseph is called the father, quote-unquote, of Jesus, And that not only by those who knew no better, but by the Blessed Virgin herself, who knew all. Yes, he was. He was his stepfather. He took care of Mary and the child Jesus. Was a remarkable man. And yes, Mary was aware of what was going on. But again, going back to Luke chapter 3, at times she seemed to need to be reminded as to the Lord's ministry. Let's read on. Our Lord on the cross commended his mother and Saint John, to each other's care, again, we've already discussed this, for a period of time, due to stigma, family strain, separation, due to the Jews being hostile to Mary, quite possibly, and her other children, John, being the youngest, was asked to take care of Mary, and John, being the closest, was asked to take care of Mary and the children. Let's continue. Even Maya admits that, it will not suffice to say that Christ's brethren did not believe on him, John chapter 7, which we've already discussed. For the speedy overcoming of this unbelief could scarcely be concealed from Christ. It's possible that Jude wouldn't live to a good old age. Most of the apostles lived and died very young. Only John would live the longest. James, the Lord's half-brother, would be dead by around 65 AD. And indeed, it is inconceivable that Christ should appear to one of Mary's supposed sons, that this son should be specially entrusted with the administration of the mother church of Jerusalem. And Mary herself should join and worship with her sons. And yet all the time live in the house and under the care of a comparative stranger. Well first of all John wasn't a comparative stranger. He was a cousin of Jesus. And it's quite likely that his mother was Mary's sister. There's a 40 day period from Christ on the cross to the day of Pentecost. Around 40 days During that time Mary has been isolated quite possibly from her other children and for 40 days or so John is taking care of Mary and her other children. After Acts chapter 1 she's never mentioned again. After Acts chapter 1 it's quite possible that James who was saved and a leader in the early church was perhaps able to reconnect with his mother. We don't know Exactly what took place pre-the cross. We know John 7, there is a splinter in the family. His brothers are pushing back against him. Mary seems to have been faithful along with Jude, and Jude was obviously younger than Jesus, but after the cross, they all seem to come together. So for 40 days, Mary seems to be isolated with her children, but under the care of John. Post Pentecost. Mary and all of her children are believers in Jesus as a family unit and perhaps James and Jude and others took care of Mary and her need to be taken care of by John would come to an end. Let's continue. Once the body of Christ was entrusted to her care, surely in heaven she cannot fail to intercede for his mystical body. How do you know that? Why would you think such a thing? Such a statement is speculative, it's a biased assumption, it goes back to superstition over scripture, tradition over truth, following a system of faith put in place for decades and again Luther would have been taught such material as would have Knox, but such teaching is pernicious, such teaching is heretical, it's foolishness. Nowhere in scripture Are you told to pray to the dead or for the dead? Nowhere in scripture. And I mean the Protestant Bible. These 66 books in the Protestant Bible. Nowhere are you told to pray to anyone. Other than the Lord God. It continues. For those that are her children. Because they are the brethren of her son. She would be absolutely appalled. To be made aware. How sinful people are praying to her every day. Of every week. Every day of the year. It's heartbreaking really. And this dictionary. Cites Irenaeus. And Augustine. And others. As justification. To hold such a belief. For the church of Rome. They have to go back to tradition. To prove something. It's like evolution. They have to go way back when. To a point in time. To uphold evolution such and such once held it and such and such reaffirmed such and such a statement it's circular reasoning and here same sort of a thing well irenius believed it and also a date of 177 ad concerning certain people calling mary the virgin mother to somehow justify the catholic church's teaching but remember this even during the times of the apostles like peter and john you had heretics coming into the church, attempting to turn it upside down, and the apostles were still alive. So the date of 177 AD doesn't prove anything. As far as I'm concerned, it simply proves that heresy was already prevalent concerning the elevation of a very humble Jewish woman to the level of almost deity. Shameful. And again, it says the following, Thus the virgin mother, quote-unquote, is a title given to the church in the letters written by the Christians of Vienne. And Lyons, in the year 177, quoting Eusebius, it means nothing. Just because a group of people called to the Virgin Mother doesn't prove anything. Such people probably hadn't even read the New Testament to begin with. Continue on. But till the last parts of the 4th century, there were strong reasons which kept devotion to the Blessed Virgin in the background. There was the danger of scandal to the heathen, who, with their own inadequate notions of worship might misconstrue the honour paid to Mary. And then, there was a long struggle with Arianism, when the church was contending for the very centre of the faith. In other words, let's not rock the boat, let's not make this official dogma due to the heathen, and yet, Catholic churches, especially the Vatican, were built on heathen sites. Let's continue on. When once the belief in the full Godhead of the Son had been fenced round by formal definition that would be Nicaea 325, when once it had been decided that no exhortation of the son should suffice unless he was confessed to be the one eternal God. Then there was no longer any danger of confusing Mary's honour with that of her divine son. It's a very poor argument. And I wonder, had such a belief system been properly tested back in the 3rd and 4th century, would it have been possible to have taken off would mary have been allowed to be elevated to this level of almost goddess and there's two more pages concerning mary but i think we've looked at enough to hopefully respond to some of this nonsense but also to allow ourselves to at least appreciate the mindsets of luther knox and zwingli catholic priests later protestant pastors but still hung up on this elevation of mary to the level of deity, like I say, the level of Godhead, like I say. But uh, by retaining such a view and never repenting of such a view, they have given the Gentiles and others the opportunity to blaspheme the nature of God Almighty. And for that, I think such people will be severely judged at the judgment. So as we conclude this video documentary, we've looked at the shallow and superficial thinking from the catholic church going back centuries concerning mary's alleged perpetual virginity for them they needed to be so so they can worship her they can pray to her they can somehow preserve her memory and yet one additional scripture is first corinthians chapter nine where the apostle paul speaking about marriage tells us how the brothers of the lord jesus were married Again, going back to his brothers and sisters. Joseph had children with Mary. A typical Jewish family. It wasn't a sin for Mary to have children after the birth of Christ. But due to Catholic thinking that she couldn't be defiled with having additional children. They have decided to put this aroma around her. Elevate her to the level of deity. Misapply scripture misinterpret scripture refuse to correctly exegete scripture go back to church fathers and not the scripture itself to speak for itself and again luther zwingli calvin and others at times seemed to surrender to catholic superstition also of interest to me was many confessions and creeds and catechisms from the presbyterian church and other churches even going back to the fourth century and i can't find any creed or confession of faith which upholds mary being a perpetual virgin therefore such a teaching is private interpretation starts in the early church is retained retorts over the decades and centuries and tragically the reformers should have broken free from such nonsense but did not would not and to this day ironically enough many followers of calvin luther and other reformers correctly have rejected mary's perpetual virginity but their forefathers going back to augustine luther and calvin and zwingli very much believed it upheld it and would have taught it as being factual when of course it was not but the purpose of this video has been to explore expose such an erroneous belief exalt christ as being virgin born born without sin died without sin was resurrected not to allow anyone to steal his glory not to allow mary to shadow the glory of the lord jesus christ and also the immaculate conception is another heresy going back to mary being conceived without original sin which is ridiculous but again it has to be Taught by the church of Rome to present her as being almost godlike. To put on par with her son which is not necessary. And by doing so they are robbing Christ of his full glory.